2: All right, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Uh, Sean's laughing because I just had to redo the startup. Um, I'm not a professional broadcaster, as you might have uh, been able to tell. Uh, But we're coming to you. We're recording on November 3rd, which is obviously a gigantic day in America. It's election day. Um, So Steve and I thought this would be a good distraction for the Americans on the podcast and the Americans listening because it's sure to be a long couple of days. Uh, there's also something going on today called the Champions League. Um, I'm not sure what that is or why people are interested in it, but pretty busy day, uh, just not for Roma fans or the team. So I thought we'd get together, um, just do a quick catch-up about uh, the Fiorentina match and discuss a few of the off-the-pitch things, maybe some of the site developments we've covered over the past few days before we wrap it up by looking at Roma's Thursday encounter with Cluj. Um, so, this is Bren. Uh, we are back to our three-man crew. I'm joined, as always, by Steve and Sean. Uh, Steve, how are you doing?
1: Doing well. Uh, I agree with you. Welcome distraction from all the election coverage we'll see tonight. Um, and just a quick Champions League update. Inter just went down 3-2 to Real Madrid. Uh, not looking good for Italian teams today. Last I checked, uh, Atalanta was down 5-0 to Liverpool. So, Oh, my gosh. Not a good day to- for Serie A so far.
2: Yeah, I, where do you stand on that? Should we be rooting for the other Italian teams for the sake of it, Sean?
0: I always do. I try and always do. I mean, even when Juventus get to semis and finals, I I want them to win. So I I do. But if other people don't, that's okay with me.
1: I I agree. The only team I might not root for if they got far enough is Lazio, just because it's Lazio. But in the group stage, I even root for them because, you know, it benefits the league in the long run, I think, when Italian teams do well.
2: Um, Yeah, I I would agree. Um, There's always the coefficient concerns to worry about as well. All right, so yeah, a lot of stuff going on outside the Romaverse. In the Romaverse, we're going to recap um, Sunday's, I think it was Sunday's, 2-0 uh, victory over Fiorentina. Um, so in case you missed the match, it was a home match. And for the first 10 minutes or so of the game, it was pretty much the Gaetano Castrovilli show. Uh, he didn't really threaten on goal, but he was really the star of the first 10 minutes. There was one um, instance where he was deep in the Roma box, and he did sort of a behind-the-back pirouette in the box, tried to get a shot off. Um, but for me, it was sort of uh, rewarding to see because I had just spoken to Tito um, from our Fiorentina site about Castrovilli and how he's essentially the new star of the show for the viola. And he certainly did not disappoint. Um, but it was really sort of worrying those first 10 minutes. Fiorentina really seemed like they were taking the match to Roma. Um, but that really, that was just sort of it. It was the first 10 minutes. And then the match really opened up in the 12th minute when Antonio Morante had a pretty long free kick into the middle of the park. Um, nobody was really, it wasn't really headed for anyone in particular, just sort of breezed past him and fell to Leonardo, excuse me, Leonardo Spinazzola, who just straightaway charged the goal, got a little bit lucky when he had a deflection and fell right back to him. Uh, but he had a really, really, what I thought, great shot to beat Drogowski. He was cutting in from the left, drifting to the right, it looked like he was going to go far post. So he had Drogowski lean that way before he turned and fired it to the near post. That put Rome up 1-0, and then that was pretty much it for the match. Pedro added another one, I think, in the second half off of one of the best counters I think we've seen all year from – I think it was – it was off a goal kick, and I think it went to – no, it wasn't off a goal kick, but it had, went to Jacko. It was, yeah, it's Vertu.
0: Vertu sent a cross ball to Jacko. Yeah. Yep.
2: And then to Mkhitaryan. Mkhitaryan drove in the box and just a simple square ball across the face of goal. Uh, right the page for the tap-in. It was really, I think, um, sort of emblematic of what the team is doing well at the moment, which is being led by these savvy veterans who – Um, You can really, I think this year more than the past, we're really seeing a palpable difference between promise and experience. And I think that experience won out. So I'm going to turn to Sean since Sean, you did our Sinners and Saints review. Um, So when we look at that match, obviously, the first 10 minutes were sort of more favoring Fiorentina. What do you think was the key to that turnaround other than that fortuitous goal kick?
0: Well, I, I also wrote the recap on the day itself, and I, That's I admitted right. that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I admitted that I I walked in late, so I, I actually missed the first fifteen minutes of the game. I can only think that Fiorentina came into the game with a with a game plan that was very obvious to see, which is that they wanted to hold onto the ball, and Roma, as we've seen all season long, don't necessarily prioritize holding onto the ball; they'd rather catch opponents cold. So. I can only explain. That. I think maybe when we're talking about Roma having slow starts early in games, that they're maybe overdoing the the playing possum, and then they they wake up when they realize that it's you know time to actually get in the game.
2: Yeah, I uh, have to thank you. Sean's given me a bit of reprieve from doing the uh, the match recaps. Not to say that we don't enjoy doing, it, but Sean, would you would you say it's it's a little bit tougher to write about a match as you're watching? It's tough to fully
0: absorb it, right? Yeah, it's definitely different. You know, when, with two tabs open, you you don't you don't quite get to see 100% of the game, and you don't quite to get write an article 100% the way you want it. So it's kind of half and half. But I, I was I'm enjoying it. I, I just saw you, you're taking over it again this week, but I was enjoying it. <laughs>
2: okay, good. Yeah, I just I just felt bad. I felt like I was foisting it upon you, but yeah, they can. Uh, it, it's tough. I mean, picture all that. We're also running a Twitter account, interacting with fans. So I just needed a couple of days off. So thank you for that. Um, Steve, you were able to catch the
1: match from start to finish, right? Yeah, except for those uh, blips that uh, ESPN had. I know they cut out a couple times in the second half. But other than that, I saw the whole match. Oh, God. It's um, funny you mentioned yeah. that. I was watching
2: uh, Monday Night Football last night, um, torturing myself by continuing to watch the 1-7 uh, Giants now, and the mm-hmm. same thing. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you caught that, but for us U.S. viewers, ESPN was um, pretty spotty over the weekend, Sean. Uh, so, Steve, <laughs> saw, you saw the whole match other than those cutouts. What did you think? was the key turnaround. How did they get past that first 10 minutes stumbling? Block?
1: I, I honestly think it was the goal. I think the goal just kind of, I don't know if it changed their mentality. I don't know if, you know, it just woke them up, but you know, the first 10 minutes were a bit dicey. Like you said, with Castrovili really, putting a little, them under a lot of pressure. Um, Speaking of found that goal. And I think from there, Roman didn't really look back after that. Fiorentina didn't threaten too much. I know Roma lost the possession battle, which they've been doing a lot lately. I think it ended up being about 58, 42 in favor of Fiorentina. Um, last glance that I, I remember. Um, but I, I thought they played a pretty pretty good game all around. I mean, the fact that Castrovilli was taken off at halftime, I think favored them a lot. It spoke a lot to how they were really controlling the game in the first half. He took that early yellow card, which kind of conditioned, I guess, Iakini's substitution a bit because, you know, on paper and from what we've seen so far prior to this and from what Tito told you is that, you know, he's he's their main man now. And Losing him at halftime had to have taken something out of Fiorentina's sales, um, you know. And then they found that second goal, and after that, it was it was kind of textbook that they would finish out the match. They didn't really give too much up. So overall, I thought good performance against a fairly talented team, maybe an underperforming team. But I think it was the goal that kind of just got things going for him. And you know, we'll talk about key players maybe a little bit later from that match. But Spinazzola had a big big match outside of just the goal too.
0: Mm. Yeah. yeah. I got so uh, I, was, I just want to say quickly, yeah, Steve, you're probably right, because uh, I remember in, in the post-match, at least three Fiorentina players and Beppe Iacchini himself said that the first goal changed everything. And really, really, like, they shut down after they conceded. It. it wasn't part of their plan, so, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think like, whenever you concede a- against the run of play, it kind of it takes you back a little bit because, you're, yeah. you know, the first 10 minutes you're like, okay, we're looking good. We're on the road. We're putting Rome under pressure, and all of a sudden you get hit, and it's kind of like that yeah. gut punch, and they didn't recover from it this time.
0: Yeah, all, all that effort just to lose. So,
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, Sean, let me, I'm going to come back to you on this because uh, your opinion of that Fiorentina side is drastically different than our fi- our Fiorentina expert, Tito. and it might oh, be. Yeah? Well, it, it might be kind of like us. He's, he's sort of, you can't see the forest for the trees. And given how there's a lot of similarities between the two, the two clubs, and you can just sense uh, yeah. Tito, Tito's sort of frustration. He, he deals with it well and sarcastically. But you sort of mentioned that you felt like this was a very talented team in terms of some of the Viola teams we've seen in the past. So what is it about that team you like so much and why didn't that show up over the weekend?
0: Absolutely. It's a team bursting with talent. Uh, I I would take the midfield three of Kastarighi, Andrebat, and Eric Pulgar, even though I know he didn't start. But I would take those three any day of the week. Um, Pulgar, he runs for three three different people every match. Um, Kastarighi can do everything. Really, everything, yeah, and an man, yeah. Uh, yeah, and from what we've seen from Amadabat at uh, Verona last season, you know, everyone on the Chiesa Forum was raving about him in his in his Verona matches. Um, and you've got, you know, kind of a like Kwame, who I I really thought I felt was unlucky to lose out to Zaniolo for Young Player of the Year two seasons ago. But they've both picked up knee injuries since then, so they're both on the on the, the comeback path. Uh, Vlaovic is a bit out there, but I guess what. Of uh, what I can't understand. I, you know, you're asking me how's this team not performing to the, the way I'm hyping them up. I really don't know. I even I wrote it after the match. I just thought, like, these, this this Fiorentina team has so many good players. I don't understand how they where they got them all from because it's not like they splashed the cash. Some of that cost them three million euros. You know, they found them in Serie B. So wow. <laughs> uh, there's been some amazing recruitment done over the last two seasons. And uh, I, I just – I don't know. People have accused it. They've, they've left the blame at Yakini's door. Uh, I, I don't know. I really – I can't explain it. Maybe maybe, they, maybe it's just still too young of a team. I don't know. Yeah, I, a, I,
2: I think the, the one thing I remember from my conversation with Tito, his it seemed to me his biggest sort of concern was their lack of a real number nine. And I, okay. I, I talked to him a little bit after the match and just seeing what he was tweeting out, a lot of the chances. He was just sort of making jokes about, it. imagine if we had a real striker. And then, he's like you're right, they brought Vlajovic on in the second half, and I think there was some rumors over the summer, like Roman was considering paying 40 million for him. And yeah. it seems like he's uh, he's building up quite a reputation, but it didn't really. I, I didn't see much from him that day. It was, yeah, all, he, it was all Castrovilli for me.
0: So is all over the place. I mean, he had he had he went one night in the summer where he deleted all his whole entire Instagram account just because fans were criticizing him. You know, he's he's a little bit thin skinned and and you know easy to to, to upset. Um, but I I wonder if they're just maybe a little bit too young because the the experience the the blend of experience they've tried to introduce you know the old guys are really old they they're not like oh mid that thir- like early thirties like like we have Mkhitaryan okay Pedro's getting up there a little bit but it's the, the ours are incredibly old whereas they put Ribery and Callejon and those guys are really like it's like it's the eleventh hour for them you know so I I wonder if maybe their their team balance is. Not quite there yet, but if, if they kept this team together for two seasons and maybe got a new coach, if he's really the problem, I'd be afraid of this to be on personally.
2: Yeah, I, Kyle Hone, I, I think it's you know, once you lose that mustache, it's just all downhill. <laughs> <laughs> Such a perfectly copped mustache, and then I think when Polgar came on, that dude has the neck tattoo game just 10 out of 10. He would fit in with it perfectly, <laughs> look really good actually. Yeah. Um so let's let's uh, jump back over to the Sinners and saints there, Sean. So you named, if I remember correctly, about five in total. Who do mm-hmm. you think who do you think stood out the most? And we're what are we, six, seven matches in so far to the season?
0: So as in like what who grabbed the headlines?
2: Yeah, well, you we named five of them. I'm just trying to see what sort of trends, what players do we think are really living up to the bill so far and which players are sort of struggling through six matches? Yeah. Who are our best
0: so far? You- even though he wasn't my number one of all players named, I'd have to say Pedro is taking all the plaudits, and rightfully so. Um, I, I personally think Mkhitaryan is pretty stunning with his, with his play. Um, who's worrying me? No one, really. I I've, uh, I wrote in that piece, and, uh, and that was based off a comment that I read that same morning, which I, I really vibed with, which is uh, someone on the forum said, these performances are ones where no one really shines that much but at the same time no one does badly you know and and this is what I've been kind of talking pushing forward to you guys as an idea of the last two seasons which is like collective football where um, you know it I get that it's not necessarily the most exciting thing to to have uh, no one really standing out as a star but at the same time everyone is coming together and, and pitching in a significant amount of work and and feeling involved in the team you know I can't Really say, oh, this victory is down to this person or that person. Although you could always say that the team is nothing without Jacko, because Mayoral is, uh, you know, there's question marks of whether he can fill in. But uh, I, still, I, I don't think that I don't think Jacko alone is enough to do it. This uh, you know, nowadays, you, you need Pedro and with him as well. So, right, kind I'm, of a non. It's a non-answer I'm giving you, but you know, no, no, kind of I'm,
2: I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because right before we recorded, I, I shout out just the a tweet to all our followers if they had any questions. And we had a question from a follower named Andrew Bunton, who asked a really great question and it sort of bridges off what you just said. So Andrew asks us, are the squad's performances meeting expectations? If so, why is Fonseca continually questioned? Do we undervalue manager continuity when building a team? What do you think Steve? We'll start off with you.
1: I think in some ways, yes. <clears throat> I think uh, from, from what yes, I've seen so yes far, the squad's you know, a little disappointing, yes the it,
2: squads meeting Expectations.
1: I think, you know, I can't complain with the fact that they haven't have lost a match on the pitch yet this season. They didn't lose a match on the pitch to finish uh, the majority of the summer last year outside of the Sevilla match. So I think we're going in the right direction. I think Fonseca does need more time. You know, they're currently a point out of the Champions League top four race, um, only five off the top, and that's with the point deduction from the Verona match. Um, the defense has been solid. You know, the, the goal scoring at times leaves something to be desired. Uh, one thing I saw... Today was the XG of Roma. They have the second uh, biggest negative in terms of underperforming in their expected goals. They're at a minus 254 from where they should be scoring. Uh, Only Udinese was worse. Udinese is minus five below their XG. Um, So Roma scored 13 times and they've been projected to score by the XG 15 and a half times. Uh, but their defense is overperforming by two and a quarter goals. So I think overall the trends are pretty good. If they can get that goal scoring down a little bit better, you know, they would have won that Juve match with a a little bit better finishing. Uh, I think we've seen good, solid performances from most players. Nobody's really like – last season, even when we had good matches, there were matches where you'd be like, oh, Pellegrini had a terrible game or this person had a terrible game. Um, I don't think we're seeing that as much this year, like Sean mentioned. It's more collective football, which I think is important, you know, because – Good teams find ways to win as teams and grind out results at times, and I think Roma is starting to trend that way. Um, I think in the past, some of the performances we've seen this year, like especially the Milan match where they fell behind three times and had to come back three times, Uh, Juve conceding a tying goal and then bouncing right back and scoring, that mentality I think is starting to change a bit. I think it's a little bit down to Fonseca, but I also think it's down to players like Pedro Mkhitaryan, those veterans that have been around the block that know that if we give up a goal to Milan, the match isn't over, you know, we give up a goal to Ibrahimovic within the first five minutes, Roma bounce back. Whereas we see a team like Fiorentina with a younger team and just a couple older veterans that couldn't bounce back from Roma scoring 10 minutes in. So I think, I think the continuity is important. I'd love to see Fonseca, you know, I don't think there's any reason he won't finish the year at this point, but I'd love to see him finish the year. And if he, you know, gets us to the top four, get him a renewal, give him a couple more years to see what he can really build with uh, the players that he has around, because I think there's been uh, some improvements from what we've seen the past couple seasons. I I don't know if you guys see the same thing, but I've been fairly happy with Fonseca. Obviously, there's areas to work on, but I think the trend is in the right direction.
2: Sean, how about you? So why do you think the questions, it's died down a little bit, but we certainly saw at the beginning of the year, you know, Maurizio Sarri's out there, Max Allegri. Why do you think the questions around Fonseca are still persisting?
0: I think because he, well, first of all, he was never the club's first choice. We know that much. But second, we haven't seen the football that he was actually uh, talking up when he was first signed in his first in his first press conference. He, his philosophy was all about keeping the ball, dominating possessions, and uh, not letting the opponent have the ball. And we've seen the exact opposite of that. <laughs> we've we've yeah. seen Roma who who love to let the opponent have the ball so that they can uh, trap them and and uh, score goals in the fast break, and maybe some of that XG deficit that Steven's talking about is about um, we we give our players too much uh, running to do, um, and then finish off chances real fast. Like we play we play vertical football. We play mm-hmm. what Di Francesco was aiming for two two three seasons ago. So it's it's like you know we expected uh, Fonseca to be leaning more towards like. What we saw in Spalletti's first era in, in the mid 2000s, where you, you know you really like pass the ball around on the floor in the grass, and you're playing champagne stuff. And instead, we're seeing really an evolution of Di Francesco. And then, so you got to ask yourself: Is that because the coaches compromised too much and bent over to the players, and he's not really a character who can get his football across, or is he just pragmatic? I prefer to believe he's pragmatic, but I can see how other people could could look at it as a you know he he hasn't come and actually given us one sake of football, you know, with the trademark logo that we like to put on, on the site. And that could be seen as a, uh, you know, someone who is uh, goes with the wind, you know, too easy to try and please everyone else.
2: Yeah. I, I, sometimes try to put the trademark logo, but it's, I can never remember the keyboard shortcut. So I always go <laughs> for yeah. the, re- the registered trademark, which I think is more for graphic images if I'm correct. So I gotta, I gotta figure out a way to fix that <laughs> ruining the joke. Um, but, yeah, you answered that. I was just exactly going to ask you that. Is that sort of the uh, chicken or egg? Why is he abdacting like that? But you nailed it. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we look back at this victory, um, they overcame a, a sloppy start uh, to pretty much just, you know, put the wood to Fiorentina. They dominated them. So if we look at Inter slipping on the table, Sosuo, excuse me, Sassuolo is second place. Are they going to sustain that? So when we look back a month from now, three months from now, could this be sort of the turning point for Roma's ascension up the table? What do you think, Steve? We'll start with you.
1: Um, Are reading
2: too much in this? Can Can we view this as sort of a springboard to greater success?
1: I don't know if this match will necessarily be the one that springboards us, but I think if they can continue on the trend they've been on, but maybe pull out a win here or there against those bigger clubs, which they haven't done yet against the Milans and the Juves, I think Roma has every chance in the world to compete for the top four with what we've seen from the other teams at the top of the table this year. Uh, Juve does not look like the Juve we've seen in the past. I think Pirlo is taking a while to get his feet wet and really figure things out. Like you said, Inter slipping up, Napoli slipped up against Sassuolo this weekend. Lazio doesn't look like the same team as last year. Even Atalanta has some kinks in the armor. It looks like so far. I mean, we'll see if they get it together because they tend to turn it on more mid season, but I, I, I think they can, uh, Sassuolo I'd, I'd keep an eye on because, you know, they played this week without three of their top four attackers. Um, Caputo, Berardi and Juricic were all out and they still found a way to beat Napoli. Uh, I believe it was on the road too. So they're dangerous. Um, I'll be curious to see what Roma do when they play Dezerbi because he's, you know, the next hot thing on the coaching market, you know, and if mm-hmm. Roma decide to go away from Fonseca, he'd be the name to keep an eye on. I think he's gonna have a lot of big clubs after him this year, uh, especially if things don't work out for some of the other big clubs in said, yeah. Um, but I think, you know, they just have to win against Genoa this coming week and continue on that trend. They play, Another uh, mid-table type team, I think, after Genoa before Napoli later in the month. So I think if they can build on the, the, these kind of performances and beat the teams they're supposed to beat, I think uh, it could turn into a good season for Roma if they can continue to build and stay healthy and avoid the COVID uh, problems that some of the other teams have had. Yeah, so coming up, we have uh,
2: Cluj on Thursday. Then we have Genoa, then Parma, and then back to Cluj on uh, the 26th of November.
1: Yeah, and then right yeah, after Napoli. that, I think. Yep. Yeah. Um,
2: Sean, we the same question to you. So we, we've talked a bit about maybe the compromises that Fonseca is making, or maybe just the pragmatics he's making, considering mm-hmm. all the circumstances. We saw a pretty, I'd say, I don't know, rousing, but we saw a pretty complete victory over Fiorentina led by a lot of those more experienced players. So what do you think? Could this be the tipping point? Could this be the thing that pushes them to greater heights this match?
0: Well, incidentally, I want to say first off, how well are Sassuola doing? I mean, not just on the men's team. The women's team are in the top two of the, the women's league. And Sassuolo Primavera are doing well as well. So on all fronts, that, that club is really flying right now. Yeah. Uh, but to answer your question, I, I've, I mean, I, I don't want to hammer on the same team as I just left off of. But if I'm Roma's opponents in the wintertime, I'm letting Roma have the ball. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to play into Roma's games. I'm going to. I'm going to let Roma have the ball and see if they can break break me down. Well, what we haven't seen from this Roma team so far are really uh, playing the ball fast enough around opponents where they can actually really open up teams who park the bus. You know, we haven't seen that that kind of football yet. So, if I'm if I'm an opponent that wants to stop Roma going out the table, I'm going to let Roma, Roma have the ball. I'm going to ask them those questions. Can you break this down? And we haven't we haven't seen Roma tested in that way so far.
1: Yeah, yeah that's, right. a, that's, a, that's a good point, I think, because against Hellas and Udinese is when they really struggled to score goals. And mm-hmm. those are the teams that played them more defensive. And, you know, the teams that Roma has played on the counter, the counter has been pretty impressive. So that's a, that's a good point.
2: Yeah, even against Cesca Sofia, we saw the same thing. They were just putting 7-8 yeah. people behind the ball and just content to let it come to them. Yeah. Um, yeah, so all in all, you know, pretty solid weekend defeating Fiorentina coming over that slow start. So now we're going to just uh, do a quick sort of off the pitch catch up. Um, I know if any of you guys have ever seen the account Swiss Ramble, it's just at Swiss Ramble. It's uh, a really a fantastic account, really almost completely dedicated to football finances Um, It is run, I believe by a British person uh, living in Switzerland. Yep. Brit blogging from Switzerland, usually about the business of football. Um, So it's at Swiss Ramble. So this person um, tends to do quite a bit about Serie A and Roma and they put out a thread on Aroma's 2019-2020 financial um, details. It's pretty much uh, everything we've, we've discussed in past podcasts and on the
0: site. Um, That's and- because Ro- Roma always give financial people so much to talk about.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. They're a dream come true for MBA, yeah. MBA students, I'm sure. Uh, but the, uh, the the salient point of this is um, everything's down. Revenue's down. Um to the credit, some of the expenses have dropped. we dropped almost thirty million from last year, although player amortization is up uh, operating profits down uh, profit loss is about two hundred fifty million for 2020 debts climbing um, transfer purchases transfer sales yeah it 's all over the map it's nothing we haven't seen before it 's nothing we
0: discussed before it's, the thing is how can amortization drop uh, jump up so highly does that does it mean that Rome've been signing uh players to shorter term contracts or something
2: you got me on that one um or maybe it's just older contracts that are finally coming due i'm not really sure that's not my um, area of expertise i took an mm. economics class in high school and my teacher um looked like super mario so every time <laughs> yeah and this is terrible we were a bunch of 17 year old shitheads but my teacher looked like super mario and it was a woman and every time she would start to talk one of these kids would start humming the super mario theme song and i was well, just we- I would just lose it. So, I was I was 17. I didn't give a damn about economics. So that yeah, we
0: yeah. at that age, I was taking my economics A level, and we used to drive every single economics teacher out of the class. Literally, we had uh, <laughs> like about three substitute teachers in a row that year. Um, one of them was a guy named John, who was a Fulham fan like you. So uh, yeah, right. but he he just took himself so seriously that we bound him up, and he he quit. And then uh, an Irish woman who came to substitute for him, and you know, not to give into a stereotype, but she really would, did turn up to classes drunk sometimes because that's the only way she could cope with us. So we were the biggest shitheads, big, big time.
2: <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Um. Steve and I are both teachers, so I, Steve, would you agree that sort of the the biggest sin you can have is the teachers to take yourself too seriously, especially when you're working with young kids like you and I have. I think we lost them.
1: Yeah. What, what again, was it? that?
2: No, we're just relating stories about teachers, and you and I both work with younger kids, and I think the biggest cardinal sin you could have as a teacher is to take yourself too seriously. Would you agree or disagree?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, working with the young kids, you definitely get some some things you you would never be able to make up, so I think you have to take everything, you know, with a little humor. Uh, but definitely in terms of the, the finances, it's not my uh, forte, and I think we all agree on that. It's just a matter of Roma needs to hopefully get things together under freaking a bit um and really hopefully when they get the new ds in place they really can uh you know find a more sustainable setup for how they buy and sell players while still being su- successful on the pitch
2: right uh yeah so that, that was my deviation that was just uh every time i think about economics and how i'm so poorly versed in it, i just think of what an idiot i was <laughs> 17 <laughs> um but yeah anyway check it out it's at swiss ramble it's a uh, like i said a really fantastic account um, we meant to, to go in more detail, but obviously, as you could just pick up from that last minute and a half of conversation, now that one of us is uh, <laughs> actually Warren Buffett, um, but it does it does present challenges. And obviously, the big off the pitch story over the past week or so is it seems like every week a new director of sport rumor um, gets connected. So we've seen Luis Campos, we've seen Sartori from Atalanta, Jose Boto, we've seen a whole bunch of people. So considering all of that, um. What do we think this role might really need from a director of sport? I had a conversation with somebody else, uh, one of the old time CDT guys, about what is a DS exactly? They need to know more about business, do they need to know more about, more about actual football, a little bit of both. What's your take, Sean? If you were interviewing for a director of sport, would you lean more on your football experience or more on your economic experience, assuming you were applying for
0: said position? Well, did, did they give you a straight answer to that, to that question? Because I've been asking around this whole summer and I yeah, can't get a chance
2: for When I think of it, I think of an American sports, a general manager. And from what yeah. I always assumed was the general manager puts the team together. So they have to know a little bit more about the sporting side than maybe finances. Because I always just assume these gigantic teams like the Yankees who are worth like seven, eight billion dollars have probably separate business people who negotiate the deals. They have. Um, obviously American sports, you yeah, have salary caps. So they have salary cap experts. So I think they have enough staff to where the GM can focus solely on building the team. And so mm-hmm. I was, I always assume that's what a DS did. I could be wrong, but Steve, uh, I don't know. So it, it's, hard someone, to, it's hard to know.
0: Someone on the forum did say uh, that it's like a general manager in U.S. Sports. So they, they agree to you. I, I literally, I asked around, uh, asking, like, really, why, what, what does a sporting director do? Because someone just explained to me in, in like plain English, why it's so important we have a sporting director. Because it's often said week in, week out, Roma really, really needs to get a sporting director before it can go forward. Even Paolo Fonseca is saying it, but no one really explains why. Um, the most I can figure out is that you need a guy who, can who the players can come to to separate the conversations about money from the conversations about why they're not playing in the team that week or or why they are playing in the team you know you don't want that that coach that you don't want the coach to be handling both those sides of the discussion because if if they get mixed up it's like you know okay coach i'm playing so well this week you owe me a, a contract extension you know so that's why i think a sporting director you need one because um you know you get to separate those interests and uh yeah. I I guess that means that I think they should be more well versed on the finance side because uh, you can always get a technical director to to really have the final say on, on the recruitment of players. But that's that's my answer.
2: Right. And there was some stories last week where they were thinking about hiring a director of sport and also just some some sort of like head scout, someone to just to take care of the actual nitty gritty. But I'm I yeah, guess I'm thinking why we mentioned the Swiss Ramble thing was so we obviously i wrote that piece about uh, antonio mirante yesterday and i sort of deviated into the the horrific 2018 spending spree and so i think as fans you when a team struggles you tend to look upstairs to the guy who put the team together so people rag on monchi we certainly have people rag on Patraki. so the next person who takes this position has some optimism because there's a new owner who is putting more capital in the club and wants to delist the club but they're facing significant hurdles so I guess I don't even know what I'm trying to say, Steve, but um, what do you think is the biggest challenge? Can this person overcome this? What Do they need that extra layer of scouting, the extra layer of knowing football to overcome this, considering they're going to be pretty hampered for a while?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you definitely need someone who knows the football side of it, where you can find those younger players, whether they're within the club already in the Primavera side, they're elsewhere in Italy uh, or elsewhere in Europe or the world that you can find some young talents that eventually will blossom and turn into players that can be sold down the road. Every club, I think, has to sell at some point. Hopefully, Roma won't have to sell to the extent that they've been selling if they can find some younger players to build around that uh, are lower cost, so to speak, with uh, less of a – there's no cap hit, but like in American sports, but less of a, a financial hit. Um, but I think until they figure out other parts of the the whole financial setup in terms of the stadium and other revenue sources, Roma is going to be at a disadvantage compared to some of the other bigger clubs in uh, in Italy and in Europe. But I think they well, do. One, need to one thing, I, one go thing ahead. I want to say,
0: so just real quickly, um, one thing, one option they do have we never mentioned is that because uh, it's a new ownership, they can go into a new uh, free settle, settlement agreement with UEFA, which we has in the. The early 2010s when Sabatini was at the at the club, and we could, uh, UEFA gave Roma that permission to to run at minus 30 million a year, um, and that meant one less player sell on the books. Obviously, when Monti came, we had to break even at zero, so it it looked like Monti was so eager to sell players that we you know we were selling two two key players a season, and that's just because we we exited the subsequent agreement. Now that we've got new ownership, we can actually go into a new three year agreement where UEFA you know, effectively give us that three years to to have club continuity and build that team so that we can actually, not really so we can win trophies, but so we can build players to a good enough level where we, we make some major sales that, you know, bring the debt down, but go ahead.
1: Yeah. I think that's a good point too. And especially if you want to keep, and you know, fingers crossed, he comes back a hundred percent or as close to as possible a player like Zaniolo who, you know, Roma really doesn't want to sell at this point. I'd imagine, you know, if you can get a settlement like that for a couple of years, you can hang on to a player like that to hopefully build around a couple of these other young players that we've seen without just tearing the team apart. Because I think one of the biggest things for Roma this season is that it's mostly the same team as last year with the the addition of Pedro and Kambula and guys like that. For the most part, Roma kept the team together, which I think is important if you're trying to build something and you're trying to eventually get back into the Champions League this year. I think having most of the roster together is important. You know, this year was kind of a wash because of COVID, so the market wasn't the same as it usually is. But I think in that sense, Roma did better this year in terms of not selling major pieces. Um, I think they just need to find a way to do that more consistently and still be financially stable. And, and that's, you know, the I don't know how that the new DS or direct technical director working in Houston, they find that those pieces to the puzzle and they fit it all together in a way that, you know, we can survive until we get other revenue sources like a stadium or freaking find some good investors, you know, and sponsors and things like that. So it'll be interesting to see no matter who it is. I, to me, it's still kind of crazy that it's now November, they still haven't hired somebody. Uh, I don't know if that means they're trying to buy their time for someone who's under contract for this season, and maybe a contract is running out. Um, Because, you know, a lot of these names pop up from the newspapers that is pure speculation, the same way we could speculate. So I wouldn't be surprised if they hire somebody who we're not even looking at right now, or the papers aren't even looking at. It's just, you know, it's, it's kind of unthinkable, especially from an American perspective teams always have a general manager like Brent was saying. So, yeah, I mean, I, I might just be, you know, rambling here a little bit because I don't know where they're going to go with it. Um, and I don't know if any of us do and what the actual solution is for them.
0: Well, one, one, uh, one story that, Romanista' vouched for this week is that Dan Friedkin did fly to Portugal this week. Mm-hmm. They can't confirm whether it was Lisbon or elsewhere, but they definitely he was in Portugal according to Il Romanista. and uh, so that they've really used that to say that Luis Campos is the guy who uh, has the most substance behind being hired as a, the next Roma sporting director and that ties in with your theory that you know they're waiting for him to leave his contract with leave. Um, before you can actually be announced but, uh, aside from Luis Campos there really hasn't been anyone else with it, with real substance behind them
1: yeah and and Lille's been you know fairly impressive in France from what I from what I've seen right the past couple seasons mm-hmm. champ, champions of quality so you know taking a smaller club like that and you know roma hopefully can if they can get him can build on that kind of same model and turn it to a consistent champions league team too
2: all right, we'll have to end it there. Um, we're gonna have to cut for a quick uh, commercial break and this marks the first time I've ever remembered to actually do that. <laughs> so We'll see you on the other side of the break where we're going to flip the discussion to Cluj and maybe discuss a couple of the stories we've written about this week. Okay, uh, everybody welcome back um, from our first uh, professionally thrown out to commercial break. I'm pretty proud of that because I always forget and I have to find an awkward place to put the mid commercial role. Uh, Yeah, so if you missed that first part of the discussion, we were just wrapping up talking about the challenges that Roma's new director of sport will face. Um, Summary is basically that there are still financial challenges, so presumably Roma will want a director of sport who can find a deal. Nothing new there. So we're going to shift our uh, focus a little bit. Um, I'm going to deviate from our agenda here. So this morning... Uh, We woke to the news from, I think it was El Romanista sorted it sourced it, excuse me, about the possible cancellation of the remainder of Javier Pastore's contract. Um, Apparently there is some sort of clause in the deal that says if he's inactive for 180 straight days, um, they can rescind the remaining portion of his contract. I'm sure there's some sort of prorated buyout. Um, But the math is correct. If he's not back in training or on the pitch by January 23rd, 2021, the story goes that they might nix the rest of his deal um, because the hip surgery he had over the summer in Barcelona, um, by some estimates, hasn't been working. There were some rumors that they might have to redo it. Um, So we're not going to discuss that because his agent sort of came right out and said, yeah, that's not going to happen. He's going to be back next week. So I think we should talk about what can we expect from Javier Pistori, how will he fit in um, with this new team, how will he fit in with Mkhitaryan and Pedro, um, so, let's we'll start with Sean. You're a pretty big uh, proponent or advocate of Pastore. What do you think he could bring to this current team? How will he fit in with Roma's newest um, offensive signings? Good
0: question, because I, I really hadn't thought about it, honestly. Um, but, I but not mean, well, I mean guard, but
2: <laughs> it just came up. It seemed pertinent.
0: Yeah, well, we, we've seen him play the exact same role that Henrik Mkhitaryan plays. So, I can only imagine that he uh, comes in to offer – Depth and to offer uh, Mkhitaryan a rest, because you know, we're, we're all here worried about whether Mkhitaryan, Pedro, and Jacko have the legs for the season. So, any you know, Pastore being able to slot in those front three positions is always welcome.
2: Yeah, we even saw a few uh, brief instances last year where he was playing as a defensive midfielder. I think it may have just been for like a half or maybe a match, and he still did pretty well. Steve, do you th- I mean, obviously bringing Pastore back at Pastore, excuse me, at any uh, percentage of health would be a benefit, but um, Steve, what do you think? What can you bring to the current side that might be missing?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing, like Sean said, is to actually provide some depth in that attacking midfield position because with Zaniolo out and them not being able to uh, sign El Shari before the end of the window, I think it, there definitely is a hole there um, and a role for him to fill. Um, you know, his passing ability would be – nice there to help unlock defense especially against maybe a team that likes to pack it in and Roman needs to unlock a, a tight defense um, I think he could help there um, you know he's not the fastest player on the break or anything like that with the counter we've seen but you know Sean's bigger on tactics than me but I think he could fit maybe in that role against some of those more tightly packed teams it, would that be correct Sean where he would sit maybe better against uh, a tightly packed defense than on the counter-attack
0: Absolutely.
1: That's
2: what you want guys like Pastore in the pitch for. Yeah. yeah, That's that was sort of my thought yeah. process too. He may not be able to run with the, the rest of our forwards, but he can certainly spring them from deeper positions. So I think if he gives you additional options in midfield and even deeper and more of a holding, or not in that role, but at least in that position on the pitch, I think that benefits it. So I, I guess we'll see. They said he might be doing individual training as soon as next week. Um, so if that's the case, you know, that Roma's best laid plans might go to waste because certainly he's got – Signed through June 2023, and he's making 4.5 million after taxes. So he's certainly not a light burden on the payrolls. Um, so that was just a, a quick story that popped up this morning. Um, it was kind of interesting. Never really heard of a clause like that that allows you to rescind the mainer, the remainder of the deal. Okay, so we're gonna. Well, it's, uh, it's a
0: it's it's a league wide clause, isn't it? it's standard in every contract.
2: Is that right? Okay, it's I guess yeah. I guess it's we never seen it happen.
0: Is but, it's something yeah, that they dug up it. because. Yeah, it's a, they dug it up in the press because Pastore's injury record is just that bad. But you know, if 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 he hadn't, if he wasn't around, we wouldn't hear about it. But it's always been there, apparently.
2: Yeah, so I'm wondering if maybe they're just using it as an excuse or as a sort of a, a an arrow in their quiver to get rid of him. Because certainly we've seen Roma players out for more than 180 days. That's that's for damn sure. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so we'll we'll spend the rest of this. Uh, podcast here talking about Roma's match on Thursday against Romanian side Cluj. Um, If you've been a Roma fan for at least a decade or 15 years, you're familiar with Cluj. They've played four times, um, starting back in the 2008 Champions League. Um, That was, I'm looking at right now, so we had two matches. Obviously, um, Cluj actually took the first spoils in September of 08. We had a Christian Panucci goal. And then someone named Coolio from Cluj, not the old rapper Coolio, but Coolio had goals in the 27th and 49th. And then we came back in November 26th of 2008. Roma struck back with a 3-1 victory thanks to goals from Matteo Brighi and Francesco Totti. No, Brighi scored two. How about that? And Totti scored one. Hmm. And then again in the Champions League during 2010, uh, we had a, when we took the 2-1 win at home with goals from Philippe Mexes and Marco Borriello. That was in September of 2010. And then December of 2010, they actually had a 1-1 draw with Marco Borriello scoring again. Um, so not a terribly unfamiliar opponents. Um, I think they are they are the defending champions in the Romanian League. They're curling in third place, six points back from first. They actually have two midfielders, both Croatians, who have Syria experience. We have um, Damjan Djokovic and Gabriel. De Bullia, I looked that one up before. Um, both of them have played for several teams in Syria. Um, but I can't really recall either of them off the top of my head. Uh, so when we look at this match, if we look at the way Fonseca has been treating the, Euro- the Europa League so far, it's been sort of the B team, the second unit comprising most of the starting lineup. And so we shout out um, a request for questions again. And we got a couple of really good questions, um, two similar questions from one of our followers named Adam Simons. And then we have a Hillen, excuse me if I'm mispronouncing this name, Mauryan. They're both basically saying, uh, what changes could you see to help the Europa League stars to score a goal? Um, and Hillen had the suggestion of maybe could we possibly see some Primavera players come in just to give them a shout in our, maybe Darbo, Zalewski, Milanese, et cetera. So before we answer that question, what do we think? Let's start with you, Steve, on this one. Why has the second unit struggled so much, particularly early in matches? We saw in Bern, obviously, they're playing on plastic grass. It was really wet out. They had a lot of difficulty getting Mayerall involved. They had a lot of difficulty really mounting any sort of comprehensive attack. And then we saw the same thing against Cheska Sofia. We talked about that a minute ago. They just had that really, really low block defense really frustrating them. So what in your eyes, in your mind, is sort of the biggest – Cause of those struggles for Roma's second team?
1: So, um, the Europa League's been hard for me to watch because being at work yeah. and with the, the new <laughs> streaming, true. I used to, like when they were in the Champions League, I would DVR the match or, you know, catch it on demand afterwards. Um, so, I haven't seen either game uh, fully, but I've been, you know, I read what you guys put up about it in those match reviews and um, just so, so it, it, hasn't,
0: it hasn't just been hard for me to watch, period.
1: <laughs> no, no, I just have to watch it, but following the match tracker on, uh, last Thursday against Sophia was certainly frustrating seeing, you yeah, know, it's literally
2: and figuratively hard to watch. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> you know, so I've been keeping track now watching, watching highlights and certainly there's been, I, I guess, you know, my role from everything I've read has been very underwhelming, um, from what you guys have said, you know, um, I don't know if it's still him acclimating to the team, um. But they need to get something going. I, this week, with uh, they just announced today Carlos Perez is probably going to miss out on this one, which means that, you know, I, I do the problems every weekend. It's been a heavy turnover. The one position where they've had to kind of been forced to start a regular has been in the attacking midfield because we have that shortage there. Like I mentioned, he's been changing nine, ten guys, and that's one of the positions he hasn't had to change. I think this week, I think we see probably Mikatarian and Pedro both starting behind Meyerall if he decides to go Meyerall up top again. Hopefully that can really? help him out. Um, wait, 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 wait. I'd, wait, say, wait. I'd you, say
2: you think he's going to start Pedro and Mikatarian? Well, I'd say,
0: I'd say our, Pellegrini has to push up, doesn't he?
1: It could be that, too. I thought that's what he would do last week, and he ended up starting who? Mikatarian started to play 45 minutes. So he could put, yeah. push Mikatarian up, but in some capacity, it's going to be at least one of the Pedro, Mikatarians, and Pellegrini or the two veterans um, behind Meyer also. Whatever combination it is. Hopefully with some more experience behind him, maybe he can, you know, they can feed him a couple of passes that maybe get him a good look on goal and he can unlock the defense. Okay. build some confidence for him because, you know, uh, like I said, I haven't seen the matches, but from everything I've read and you could, I, I followed a lot of your comments last week on the Twitter. It's been very underwhelming which is a little disappointing because he came with a reputation
2: yeah no I, I understand what you're saying now if Paris isn't out there that obviously yeah necessitates someone else to play but the only thing I as you're saying I can think of so they're playing Cluj they're both even on four points but Roma's down by one in the goal differential so this is kind of a critical matchup they could win this they would go on mm-hmm. seven they would potentially be three points above potentially two of the remaining teams in the group so in that in that light this is kind of an important match because it would allow them to sort of I don't want to say take a break, but it would make the next ensuing match against Cluj maybe not quite as uh, significant or quite as urgent.
0: Um, yeah, and also you've got the fact that Roma uh, uh, has spent two of their home games by the end of this round, so that they're mostly on the road yeah. on the return.
2: Yeah. So, let's, so, Sean, you and I have unfortunately borne witness to both Europa League matches so far. and <laughs> I think for me when I'm watching and I'm really keen <laughs> on Mayoral simply because we know nothing about him. And we had this discussion earlier in the summer um, when discussing the possible addition of Arcadius Millick. I'm um, just sort of talking about Dzeko's role in the offense. Um, is Fonseca using Dzeko like that simply because it's no other option? We discussed like, I can't remember how to phrase it, but essentially is Dzeko a Fonseca type of striker or is Fonseca just making do? So then when they signed Mayoral, we sort of thought, well, maybe he's kind of the striker that Fonseca always wanted. And we're thinking maybe that's why he's struggling, because the rest of the team around him doesn't know how to play with a non-Jekko-type striker. What do you make of that? Or just broadly speaking, uh, what do you think of Amiro? Have you seen any positives from his first, I think, two starts for the team?
0: The thing is, I actually missed the first match. I mean, you remember that, right? Because you, you emailed me saying, Oh, that's uh, right. You know, yeah, you're right. Yeah. I took over. are like, are you going to cover this match or what? Well, shit, I, I, guess like,
2: I guess I'll answer this question. <laughs> but I... Just with, with broad strokes then, based on what you've seen, the differences between him and Jacko, both in terms of physical stature and skills, what do they need to do differently to get mayoral working?
0: I, I just don't see a mayoral style right now. I, I think he's kind of lost looking to... to He's going around the pitch looking to, like, get along with someone. And uh, what, what I expected of him was to be a guy who uh, I expected a finisher, you know, like someone who – a poacher more, like someone who pushes up uh, rather than Jacko who drops deep. But we've seen in – or at least I saw at the beginning of the last game that he was pushing up and was, like, was trying to live off the last man, but the ball was never coming to him. So then he tried something completely different, which is coming back – and that probably went even worse. So uh, when you ask what is he, I think he's a finisher by, by nature. But um, he's really struggling to, to strike up any kind of chemistry or even be counted at this point.
2: Yeah, yeah no, I'm wondering, I wondering I remember. It, uh, no, I just one. So I remember when they signed him, just looking over his stats real quick. I don't think he ever even scored more than eight goals. Um, so that was that was a little concerning. But then you obviously read about Zidane was a huge fan of his, and they originally wanted to try and keep him, and then they were going to get rid of another striker. Um, mm-hmm. Slips my mind at the moment. Yeah, I, I can remember one. Yeah, I can remember one positive play I, where he linked up with VR in the in the area, he ran off the last defender. VR slipped him a ball, but he was just a touch off sides. It's yeah,
0: like, I remember that one. That was yeah, last week. Right? I, I yeah. would
2: just think when I look at him, he looks like it would be faster. He looks like he has a quicker first step than Jacko. So it seems like he might be better suited for one twos, give and goes, maybe a quicker style of play. What you're saying, the things that Roma are struggling to do, which makes, leads me mm. to believe, like, well, what is it about this kid? Why did they sign him? He's just so obviously sticking out like a sore thumb, and they can't really seem to find a way to get him involved. I, I never expected I, him
0: to have a good, good first touch, though. I mean, that was obvious from yeah. before they signed him. He, you know, He's not that kind of player. Maybe you can learn that over time, but I just expected him to be signed for his uh, cold-bloodedness in front of goal.
1: And I'm wondering if they could even start Dzeko, since they're so short in the attacking mid, and play Meyer all behind Dzeko, because I know he's played a little bit out wide, too, in his career from what I, I saw in, like, a little bit break, yeah. lineup breakdowns. So maybe he can build some confidence playing with Dzeko, running off of some of those hold-up play that Jekyll can put him in on goal. I don't know. Maybe, maybe something to build his confidence. That's
0: what, that's what we thought about Patrick Schick. Maybe yeah. Work out.
1: Because, uh, like I said, they're shorthanded in the attacking mid. Maybe instead of starting Pellegrini higher up or going with the two Pedro and Mkhitaryan, maybe you play Dzeko at the striker and you play Pedro yeah. and Mayeral or some kind of combination like that behind him.
2: I, I think the only reason we, we're thinking about Mayeral is because he's, he's the new guy and he's sort yeah. of – Anytime you brought in anyone to back up Ed and Dzeko, it's I think someone necessarily who garners your attention because Dzeko is so important to, and they've had no real line of succession behind him. Uh, but let's, let's just broaden the scope and talk about the rest of that second unit. So for those of us who have seen most of the Europa League matches. Um, so we've seen a lot of VR. We've seen a lot of Perez. Uh, we've seen a lot of Paul Lopez. Uh, we've seen Max Kambula. Um What do you make of VR, Steve?
1: Um, um, how's, he, how's he doing so far? uh so from what i've seen you know I, i've seen a, he had a nice pass right last match i so saw there was a highlight of him um he looks like a player that could turn into something you know the playing time has been limited we haven't seen him much in out to judge him against that kind of competition but you know he seems like the guy that could do a lot for rome he seems like a complete midfielder if he's given the time to develop i know sean's a big fan of his right yeah yeah, yeah. maybe you could go a little more in depth because you've seen the europa league matches i didn't see a ninety-minute performance from him yet this season. So,
0: I'm actually the one person who's not impressed with his European League game so far. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I was just going to bring that up too. So, I did the um, sinners and saints from the Cheska match, and I, yeah, I put VR in as a, a saint uh, mostly because of the statistics he popped up. So, he completed eighty-eight percent of his passes, including two key passes, one big one big chance, a through ball, and he completed four or five long balls, three shots, four successful dribbles. And so, Sean, you were quick to point out that there were some other aspects of his performance that day that couldn't really be um, captured by statistics. Um, just some positioning things, letting people dribble past through him. So what is it that he's lacking at this early stage in his game? I know we talked about tackling not his strong suit. Anything else? Yeah, by,
0: to... by his own no, – that's really a big thing. By his own admission uh, early, early on in his career, I think around March, even when he was having good performances, I, I loved him for, and I still do he said that uh, defending is my weak spot and I've got to improve on that. And it's, it's obvious that he does. Um, I, I, I did see the CSK match and, uh, you know, he, he had that moment in the first half where, as he mentioned, you know, he did a, a one, two with Mayor, which I noticed because people were uh, insulting Mayor's first touch. And that was the one time that Mayor actually did, did some great cross control. So I thought, yeah, you turn around, but, um, then uh, he tried, VR tried a, a very inventive fast in the second half where it was like left footed from the left flank and it kind of dinked it like a, a golf chip shot into the middle um, and found the striker on the edge of the 18 yard area, plumb in the middle of the pitch. It was really good. So we, we know what he can do on the ball and I'm never going to downplay that. It's beautiful, it's on, on, in possession. But when you talk about reason for offensive struggles in terms of uh, the B team in Europe, Europa League, I think. The biggest reason for me that I've noticed is that everyone's doing their own thing. They're all playing individual um, self. You know, it, even Carlos Perez, when he's available, he's trying to dribble past three or four players. Uh, Spinazzola started the last match. I think he, he tried to dribble past people on his own. Mickey um, Sarin tries it. You know, there's not much cohesion. Even when the the A team make a 45 minute appearance, that everyone's doing like everyone's a man on their own island. And I think that comes from the fact that, I mean, I know you guys are you know say I love defensive midfield all the time, but really, you start via and Cristante and you've just got, it's like going back to Cristante and Zonzi days back in uh, you know uh, EDF second season where yeah. you just had a sieve through the midfield. Well, where, yeah. yeah, where the opponent could just, really just put vertical balls straight at Roma's defence. So you've got the team running back and forth constantly you know, wondering, well, hey guys, are we the attacking team or are we not? And uh, I think that just leads to a lot of uh, people just, doing their own thing and uh i really feel like vr's uh christante whoever plays in that mediano department has to do a better job of keeping the team together so that uh, yeah like the team stays together and and starts to talk and communicate about well let's put together a few moves here you know it starts for me in in vr's department
2: so and and with respect to vr do we think that stems from just his age, simple lack of experience, or is he maybe playing the wrong position? Well, could we see maybe two or three years from now he's maybe a out-and-out out attacking midfielder? Because that's – when I watched that game, I was like, I'm going to change our rating to explicit here. But I was like, holy shit, he's a lot faster, a lot quicker with the ball than I thought. He's a lot better yeah. in a tight space. So a lot of these things that you can see, yeah, he would be good holding midfielder because he can keep things moving and get out of danger. But at the same time, he's more athletic than I thought. So maybe mm-hmm. – he is miscast. Maybe he's just serving this understudy role until he can find something else.
0: Yeah, when when we signed him, he was playing uh, the number ten, the Tricot, Tricotista role at Elche. So we go. moved him back. <laughs> yeah, and uh, with the Spanish national team, he's done both. So he's he's. He's one of those all-round midfielders, but I agree with you. He, he really does a better cost as, as a more forward player. Than, so than let's, let's,
2: take a, let's take it back to one of our earlier Twitter questions. And so when we talk about sometimes the A team, but a lot of times the B team, just maybe nine or 10 guys doing their own thing, um, shouldn't that fall on the coach, Steve? Is that a valid criticism of his coaching? Or is it just, um, or is it just simple unfamiliarity and inexperience from these younger players?
1: I think it could be a combination. I think when you have a a group of players that isn't that familiar with each other, sometimes players try to do a little too much on their own. Maybe they're not as familiar with the runs that another player makes, you know, when the first 11 plays together, almost every match, I think they know each other's tendencies a little bit more, you know, they're used to playing off of Dzeko or, you know, those kind of things. So uh, I think some of it has to fall on the manager. I mean, you're, you're playing against a weaker opponent in Seska Sofia, you know, in this group, really Roma should kind of cruise, Um, So kind of hope they bounce back this match and get the W and then kind of just ride it out to win the group. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think we've seen Fonseca go to his bench more than he'd probably like in these Europa League matches because of the, the the lack of play that we've seen from the starters who were technically B team players um, going to Dzeko that first match to find the winner and players like uh, Mkhitaryan came off the bench, you know, last match, you know, he tried to manage Mkhitaryan and Spinazzola's minutes a bit, I think. Uh, but still, you're going to those bigger names in the second half, which is something you're trying to avoid by starting these second-team type of players. So, um, I think, in some ways, Fonseca is probably a little frustrated, too, from what he's seen, the fact that he's had to go to the bench earlier than he would have liked to or at all. Um, so, we'll see. I know some people are calling for, like, Primavera-type players to to come in and get some minutes in these matches, too, but... I think that's hard to do if you're – You mean
2: undefeated Primavera players.
1: Yes. I think it's hard to do, though, if you're already struggling to find consistency with the players you're putting out there. Um, To throw in a random 18-year-old kid or 19-year-old kid is going to make it even more difficult to find that that fluidity that Roma's looking for to beat Cluj a couple times and then you know unlock a CSK Sofia um, because these teams are going to play Roma more defensively. Um, like you mentioned earlier, and Roma's been winning games on the counter attack, so now you're taking your second team type players to try to really move the ball around and unlock that defense that even our first eleven hasn't really had to do too much this year. So it, it's a, it's an interesting conundrum for Fonseca because I think the substitutions have worked in the fact that it's kept the first team fresh to get results in Serie a so far for the most part, but you do lose a little bit of the. Uh, the edge that everyone would have in terms of a roster against some of these smaller teams by starting so many young players and second team players. So hopefully it works better this week, because I do expect another seven, eight changes from the the Sunday team again. Uh, I wouldn't expect them to go with many of the starters again. Uh, yeah. I also, I just Let's want to add
0: also quickly that um, a forum member brought up, brought up a great point that I didn't really think about. Uh, it was a day after the Sofia match where he said, uh, these matches can be used... Like, it, the flip side of individual performances is that Fonseca can, can use these matches to actually look at these B-team players individually and understand that uh, when the is on the A-team in the league, so later in the season, you can understand who fits in best in, mm. in the starting team. You know? So it's, it's frustrating for us to watch because we expect every match to be entertaining for us as, as fans. But uh, uh, for, for the team itself, for the, well, for the squad, it's a good exercise in figuring out that Hey, you know, VR has shown flashes here. He's, he may be good for City action as well.
2: Yeah, and I think just if nothing else, it's it's uh, quite astounding that they can field pretty much an entirely separate eleven. We haven't seen that mm-hmm.
1: in quite some time, so I think that's good. So we have, yeah, uh, and I was just going to say, thrown on on the piggyback of that with without COVID, you know, with Calafiore and Dor, we probably do see a completely different eleven yeah. those matches. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. So one last point I wanted to talk about in our agenda was a second unit issue, and I guess it's really for Roman Evergreen issue, um, which is the right back, as you could guess. Um, So, so far this year, we, I think when the season started, we just assumed that Bruno Parrish would assume a starting role at right wing back because he was so great um, in the talent of the summer. Um, He had COVID, so that knocked him out for a bit. Rick Carzop has gotten a few starts. I mean, it's it's just pretty much down to those two because David uh, Santone has some muscular issues. I think he might be out for several weeks. So who mm-hmm. who is the true number one, Sean? Let's start with you because I know you had some nice things to say about Cars dope last week. So between those two, who would be your your top choice?
0: I've always been in Carstens corner. Uh, corner. Yeah, I, I, you know, from the beginning, it was obvious that he could really play a beautiful ball. Um, could play it to the front line from like first time. Sometimes sometimes people say that he rushed the passes, but we've seen this say he's more measured than, than anyone, really. Even even more measured than Spinazzola when it comes to um, playing those one-twos along the flank and involving the team. I think only David Isabel Costa tried to do that last year, and he was criticised for it. Um, I, I think that's more in line with what Fonseca wants. But having said all of that, I don't see what Bruno Perez has done wrong. You know, I, when he comes on the pitch, I'm not afraid anymore. I think he's, he's all right. Yeah. So, I, um, I think
2: he just victim of circumstance by getting that positive test. So it just yeah. left the door open for Karsdorp. But But um, yeah. I think the, the first time we saw him though, he was playing on the left. So a bit out of position. Hmm. Um, but I, I just, I just think Karsdorp is such um, a mystery or an enigma still to Roma fans because he's hardly ever been there. So when I was watching the match over the weekend, I'm like, it's really just good to see him playing
0: for four yeah, yeah.
2: minutes, putting in a good solid, working up a sweat. And, some
0: hard and, and last time when me and Stephen talked about it in uh in one episode, I actually misunderstood Steve. Steve, I misunderstood your question because you asked me, uh, could Carlsdorp play because he's that physical fullback that you know I've, I've been saying that Fonseca is looking for, and I was only thinking defensively. But you're right; it's it's also attacking wise. You know, we've seen Karsdorp is not afraid when when players get close to him and try and. Um, brush him off the ball he he still holds on to the ball and he can brush past them like you know like a physical dribbler would do so he's got that in his arsenal that Perez doesn't is Perez avoids contact Perez prefers to um hand off the ball make a run behind the man and then receive it again Whereas Karsdorp can can do both so yeah
1: yeah I, I think I would I would lean towards Karsdorp at this point just because he came with so much potential and so much hype that it would be good to see him get consistent playing time. If he plays like he played this past Sunday, he didn't really put a, a foot wrong where he hurt the team. And I think he does carry that potential, that physical presence bombing down the right side. I think it's just um, like Sean mentioned in, in some of his pieces, it's just getting him mentally, I think, to come back. You know, he kind of, you know, will kind of just wander around after a possession where he doesn't yeah. get back as hard as you'd like. Um, if he can get that part of his game and stay healthy, I think he, you know, he has the potential to be. I'm not saying he's going to be a superstar or a world beater on the right. He's not going to be Mike Cohen when Mike Cohen had that great season for us. But um, to give us, uh, you know, the attacking type fullback Fonseca wants on the right, opposite of Spinazzola, who's been very good on the left, attacking wise, uh, it might be able to open up what Fonseca wants a little bit more from the opposite wing instead of having to rely on the left. Because I feel like so much of their play goes through the left right now with Spinazzola um, mm-hmm. that if they can get someone to push the right a little bit more and play a little more balanced, it it could be good for the attack, maybe to help unlock those defenses like we were talking about. Um, and it opens up another angle on the counter attack too, because Karsdorp can push that flank or Perez if it's Perez on those given days. I just think with Karsdorp, I think they do have to manage his minutes a little bit. So I would expect to see Perez on Thursday um, just because you're not going to want to overwork Karsdorp yet considering he's come off some physical ailments already this season. Um, so I, I would almost see going back and forth the weeks they have two matches where one gets the Serie A start, one gets the Europa League start. And how these uh, Europa League matches play out in these Serie A matches might go a long way in helping Fonseca decide who he trusts more um, since they're both getting kind of equal looks right now.
2: Right. I I feel bad we're sort of glossing over Cluj. I mean, they are top of the group. um, But, I mean, how much uh, expertise can we have on a Romanian club uh, but that matches on Thursday, uh, so let's just give us a prediction. What do you think, Sean?
0: I have no idea. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> How about just, just a, simple a
2: win, loss, or draw? What do you think?
0: I mean, the Roma win would be nice. You know, like you said, it's an important game. It's uh, you know this is our second home game of of three, uh, so only one home game left after this. Uh, it's for competing for the lead in the group. We need to win, so I hope, I hope we win.
2: What about you?
1: Yeah, I'm going to go with the win. Um, I guess I'll go. I'll go two nothing uh, since we're playing at home. The defense has been good. Hopefully, the offense will find a couple goals. But um, I would have bet the house on them winning the last match, and they didn't. So hopefully, they come out with a little more, you know, to their game this week against uh, the team that they're competing for at the top of the group. Because, like you said a little bit earlier, their next match is at Cluj, and those those trips to Eastern Europe can always be a little tricky. So if they can win this one, then you know a draw is probably good enough in Romania. So Hopefully uh, a Roma win, hopefully another clean sheet and maybe a 2 nothing win.
2: I like that. I'll go 2-0 win. I'm going to say uh, Borja Mayrell coming out party. He's going to score twice because <laughs> why not? All right, we got a little bit of time here. So we had um, a couple more questions we got from some of our Twitter followers wanted us to talk about uh, the Primavera and the winter transfer market, both of which I think could be separate episodes on their own, which I think we'll do um Sean, have you've been tracking the primavera closely this year so far
0: not as closely as before it's been a good year and a half at least since i've caught a live match but i, I do always read up on the, the reports and uh I, you know i'm gonna go again with my my favorite player Daboe. Uh, he is outstanding he's always he always has been ever since he arrived uh, he can he's a bit like vr he can he can play deep, he can play up front, he can control the ball amazingly, and he can control space. So he's he's my number one pick. If, if we're ever living that dream of primavera players playing first-team action this year, it would be him.
2: So you would think he's the closest to being Serie A-ready, for lack of yeah. It.
0: It. With the asterisks that he has the most competition for his place in, in the first team, so it's, it's not easy for him to break through it can, to kind of, you know compared to someone like a right-back at, at Primavera. It'd be great if we had a right-back that was doing amazing. We have Chiavro, who's slightly... I mean, he's been adjusting to that position, just like Ruben Providence has been adjusting to that that left wing-back position this year. So it's not, it wasn't technically their the natural position on paper, but uh Chervo has the least competition uh, to break into the first team, so maybe it's him. But I, on talent alone, I'd say the boy.
2: Right, we're seeing some really a dynamite start to the season from both uh, Nikola Zavle- uh, excuse me, Zalewski and Lamine Tall. So Zalewski has six goals and two assists. Tall has four goals and two assists. So we've seen some pretty rel- pretty prolific performances so far. But they all might be a couple of years off, is what you're
0: telling us, unfortunately. Yeah, I. I mean, we've.
2: I mean, that's we've seen, Yeah,
0: yeah, we we've seen we've seen these prolific seasons before that that don't amount to enough, you know, to much. So are you talking I, about? I'm re- talking
2: about Jan Scheller? <laughs>
1: <laughs> him,
0: uh, Tuminello. Um, it's got to go far, further than that. Steve knows it so, because he, Soletti, he it. right? Yeah.
1: was yeah, another Soletti, one.
0: Yeah, Yeah. So, um, always the strikers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I I'm a big fan of Told. By the way, I, I he he's still been at the club j- only just over a year but uh, he's, he was hit the ground running big time. And I, I like um, NDI, the new, new centre-back this year. Finally, we have a good centre-back in Primavera that's always lacking in that position. And that, that's no diss on Bianca. He goes f- further back, way further back than him. We've had so many average at best centre-backs uh, talents over the years, but we've got uh, NDI this year who's really, he's physically a beast and he, he can make the difference.
1: Yeah, I right, can't even recall a center back since Romagnoli to get uh, even a look with the first team, right? I think yeah, Romagnoli was, was maybe the last it one. It was, was Capradosi for a little
0: bit. Oh,
2: capradosi yeah. that's who I was thinking
1: of. Oh, Capradosi, yeah. yeah.
2: Well, I mean, fortunately, they, they do the one area they really knock it out of the park every summer is they do buy tremendous center backs going all the way back. You know, Castan, Marquinhos, Benatia. That's true. They always do really well in that department. They kept it up with Ibanez and Cambulo as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't mean to dismiss those questions. I just think the Primavera and winter transfers will be um, really good topics of their own when the time comes. But um, I I I don't want to assume it. It seems like the assumption is that just El Shirawi is just going to come walking
1: into in January. Steve, what do you think? I mean, from from all the reports, that seems to be the assumption. Um, you know, he's looking for playing time ahead of the Euros in June, so it would make sense. I mean, Roma has a need there for another like attacking midfield winger type player. Um, you know I don't think he steps into the starting 11 right away especially with the way uh, Pedro and Mkhitaryan have played but as a rotation type player there to spell those kind of guys I think you could do a lot worse if they could get him on a cheap deal maybe a loan just pay a salary for half a season and you know he's gonna be hungry to score some goals ahead of the Euros and and win a spot on that Italy squad yeah I
2: don't even really know what he's doing right now I follow him on Instagram it's always just pictures of him training at Coverciano or at at home watching snooker which he's, a, <laughs> which he's a huge fan of apparently. So yeah, that that um, move to Shanghai uh, did not
0: work out for him. If we're, if we're talking about following players on Instagram, let me brag once again. That yeah, yeah, yeah. tell me about
2: that. tell me about that, tell us about that.
0: Yeah. So uh, I I made it I made it no secret on the forum that I had a super crush on uh, Inter player Inter Milan central central defender Cattellan, uh Brazilian international as well. After Roma played uh, in the Serie A Feminile and the next week I, I did an oil painting of her, well, a digital painting really, but it was oil style. Uh, posted it. I didn't didn't tag anyone, and then my best friend looked at the post the week later and said, "Why haven't you tagged her? She's on Instagram." And uh, I said, "Look, I, I don't follow her. I, I'm I'm just shy. You know, I didn't want to I didn't want to do much more about it." And uh, he said, "Screw that." He's, no, he said, screw that. I'm tagging her. <laughs> 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 so he did. And uh, she, yeah, she replied. She said, grazie. Uh, and uh, I, I started getting like, all these likes on, on the picture uh, in no time whatsoever because she posted it to her Instagram stories. So I just want to brag that Kathleen actually e-spoke to me. And, uh, yeah, that's my 2020 finishing on a high.
2: That's fantastic. That reminds me of the time I wrote a story about Jarna Risa and I tagged him in and he responded to it. I was like, oh my God, you're yeah. my favorite player. And I think uh, last year, <laughs> beginning of the year, I was uh, Andreen Hegerberg had more goals than her sister. So I put that out too. And she commented to them like, so "That is kind yeah,
0: of, she, she re- retweeted an article you wrote, right?
2: Uh, I just made it. It was because I think her sister had just gotten hurt. So uh, Andy had four goals, Ada had three. And so I put that out. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I remember it. Yeah, no, 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 no. I think said, it was her,
2: her mom saw it and then she, like, quote tweeted it. <laughs> I was like, that's pretty you cool. Said,
0: yeah. I remember the exact tweet. You said, uh, uh, Angie Hagerberg has been even better than advertised. And, uh, and she, she, retweeted. yeah, she quote tweeted it saying, yeah, thanks for the, like, it's, that feels great to hear. Yeah.
2: Yeah, she's one of my favorites on that team. Um, yeah. yeah, so I guess that'll wrap it up for episode 10. Oh, real quick, our timer's count down here. So obviously, this is the 10th episode. When you think of the number 10 in Roma, you think of Francesco Totti. And it's been three years since he stopped playing right now. The number 10 has sort of existed in limbo. It's not officially retired, but no one seems to dare touch it. So we've talked a bit about which player might uh, be worthy of the number 10. I think the consensus was then Yolo. But, Steve, if you were Nicolo Zaniolo, would you want the number 10? Would you want to be the first person to wear it after Francesco Totti? Isn't that kind of daunting? Uh, yeah, I mean,
1: I, I think it's too early at this point, um, especially with the injuries and everything. But, you know, we'll see how his career trajectory goes. I think it's got to be another season or two of, you know, really solid performances before I think he'd even have to consider it. You know, maybe he wants to make his own reputation as the number 22, though. You know, some players would rather be themselves. Um, you know, I know the number 10 in, in football carries a, a special weight, especially in Rome. So it, it'd be interesting to see if he would take it on or if he would rather just be right. I, number 22.
2: I, I think that's the thing. Tati himself said it should be available. It should be something to aspire to. But at the same time, I don't, there's never been a player like him in terms of what he meant to the club and to the fan base. Yeah. So synonymous with that number. I just can't Im- imagine being the first kid to wear that. Unless you're Gerson in that one
0: picture, well, you can always you can always go to the other extreme. Remember when Arsenal had to they they wanted to get rid of all that weight behind the number ten when Dennis Burkham retired, so they gave it to to William Gallas, the central defender. <laughs> oh my gosh, really? Yeah, yeah uh, that was gosh. Wenger's plan.
2: Yeah, there was one international tournament where uh, De, Ross, De Rossi were number ten. I'm like, that just doesn't look right. He's no. not yeah. he's not a number ten.
0: Yeah, the Venga yeah. Venga wanted. Uh, you know, the next kid to be free of that, of that weight of the, of the number 10. So he just gave it to the center back for us to like, sort of like destroy the myth behind it. And then yeah, moving on.
2: That's a good move. I just, I just thought, you know, it's a 10th episode. We'll talk about it. I mean, they did retire the number six for uh, Aldair, right. But then they brought brought it back out for Strutman and then gave it to Smalling. So it doesn't really matter, I guess, but um, I'll be interested to see uh, what they do about that. Mm. guys. So that'll be our, I guess you can call it our election day special. Um, it's the first time Sean, Steve, and I have been together in a couple, at least a week or so. Man, when we started this, I thought we'd do like one every 10 days. <laughs> We're cranking them out in episodes in like a month.
0: Fun? It's fun to yeah. do. Man. Yeah, fun, yeah
2: fun. We, we still got to get Jimmy on here, though. Yeah, that's true. None of us actually know what he <laughs> sounds like. That's the curious that's thing. That's
0: true. Is it, is, speaking of Jimmy, because he's so big into politics, is, oh, we is got n- room we for got politics? 90 some... seconds.
2: We got 90 seconds. Get it
0: out. <laughs> Okay. Is there room for politics on Across the us? Are you guys going to publicly nail your, your names to any colors tonight? <laughs> Does uh, it know? I, I don't know. Steve, Steve's choking his neck like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, uh,
2: I'll just say I like the word change. I'll leave it at that. Okay.
1: <laughs> I just hope however it goes, I just hope things are calmer than it's expected. Because, you know, in, in America, one of the things we pride our, ourselves on is our democracy and i think it's kind of gone by the wayside recently and i think uh you know hopefully things go peacefully that's all i'm gonna say yeah we'll see so we
2: did this today specifically to be a distraction because a lot of americans are stressed so we hope you enjoy this and again you can catch us anywhere major podcasts are listed so subscribe like tell your friends tell your grandma tell everybody all right guys we'll catch you probably the next couple days at the rate we're going with these things thank you